Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 65, and I'm Roger Peng from the Johns Hopkins Bluebird School of Public Health, and I'm here with Hillary Parker, data scientist and race car driver from Stitch Fix. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about the next chapter in Nigel Cross's Design Thinking, or as we continue our book club, um, and we're also introducing a new segment. Um, you know, I think we are, if it's not today, it might be tomorrow is our three-year anniversary. Wow. Um, I think it might be September 20th. I have to look back. Yeah, yeah. Was that the day that we published it or the day we recorded I think it? The day that we published it, which would have been very close, I think. Yeah. I wonder if we have anyone from the beginning who's still listening. I think we may. I, I um, I'm, I'm trying to. I can't come up with specific names. <laughs> but, um, if you have, please. Call if you in. yeah, if you've listened to every episode, like please tell us why. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> Some of those early episodes were. Uh, yeah, they're we're you know getting our footing a little it took us a little while yeah yeah that's okay the um yeah it would be cool to know if someone listened like that day um and still listens and they can you can have a lapse like it doesn't have to be continuous but you know because we kind of had we had a lot of listeners at the beginning because you advertised it to your Coursera right well I still do excellent I will gladly leverage your like personal brand that's our go-to-market for... strategy <laughs> excellent how many people are still enrolling in your Coursera it's you know it's a difficult question to answer now because of the way that they they run the system it's it just runs continuously right so um it's it, like you could say like at any given moment there's like x number of people you know logged in or whatever or part of the class um, but it's not like be, before we had like cohorts. So like you'd start the class and then stop the class and then start the class and stop the class. And so, um, it was more easy to like track numbers. Now it's just like people are just coming in and out at all times. So it's just, a... I see. Yeah. Is there, but how does that work with the homework? Yeah. You have to have like a critical mass of people like in the class at any given time, basically. So basically like you submit your homework and then just wait until enough people have reviewed it. Oh, I got it. Yeah. And that's usually pretty reasonable. Yeah, if the class is big enough, which ours usually are. So. Yeah. Cool. So September sixteenth is the first episode. Oh wow! Excellent. So we're yeah. actually beyond our three-year anniversary. Feels good. Yeah. Do you feel three years older? <laughs> <laughs> I actually yes, very much so. <laughs> so I moved to San Francisco, got a new job. Um, yeah, a lot has happened. It was a big year of personal growth, my first year in San Francisco. So, <laughs> yeah. Moved in with a monk. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's like. Went full San Francisco. You know. <laughs> I definitely uh, feel older if that makes you feel any better. Um, oh, really? Because you've been in the same place and is your brain just less pliable now? <laughs> it's more like my body. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just a lot. Everything hurts a little bit more, you know, yeah. stiffer. Well, that's unfortunate. So, <laughs> sorry about that. There's nothing you can do about it, unfortunately. <laughs> Is that the only way you work, like feel older? I doubt it. No, it's just like the, you know, the usual, like the, when you teach at a university, it's like the students, they, they make you feel old, right? So Yeah, it's like high school students, high school seniors used to seem so intimidating when you were like a freshman. And then now as an adult, you see them and you're like, oh, they're babies. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm totally, I'm not forgetting that you said you had something planned for a three-year anniversary. Oh, I was going to do a thing. I don't want to do it this time, obviously, but um, one of these days, I have a little game show for you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like a quiz? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> what if I do bad? <laughs> I don't know. We may have to stop the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, As if I haven't embarrassed myself enough from time to time. <laughs> no, I've been preparing for this, uh, for, for your quiz, you know, over the past couple of months, actually. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, my god. It's a long-term project okay. for me. Wow. I'm very excited. Well, <laughs> maybe next time or the time actually, after. Yeah, we whenever. can maybe do it the next time. It won't take too long. Okay. Excellent. The fun thing is that throughout those three years, the one gift that gives keeps on giving is the Theranos story. <laughs> that's true. That's like <laughs> that's like the one consistent theme. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's not totally true because we've. I mean, it was really early on that you kind of posed this question of the student in your class, sort of saying to you, like, "You told me what not to do, but what should I actually do?" Right. Like, yeah. And I think you brought that up very early in the podcast. I think that's true, actually. I'll have to search. Yeah. But... Yeah. I would like to know that. But um, that would involve listening to old episodes, which I don't know if I can stomach. <laughs> no, no, no. It involves searching through the transcripts. It's much simpler. Oh, right. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That's why we have them. <laughs> I'm very excited. Yeah. I would love to know. Um, it would be helpful, actually, for the talk I'm giving, because I reference that as like, we've been grappling with this problem for, you know, X years. Right now, I just say three. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or I think I say over two, but now I can say over three. That's right. Yeah. 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 But um, no, that'd be that'd be very interesting. And I feel like we're finally getting a little bit of traction with it. I think we've gotten more than a little. Yeah. A lot of traction. Yeah. I um one thing that's interesting I I don't have the article on hand but um I saw an interesting article actually challenging design thinking um as sort of I mean it was interesting it was hard to read the article without trying to do the whole like you're wrong like <laughs> right you framed this completely wrong but um I tried to keep an open mind and I think what was interesting was that it was really talking about um like public projects and I don't know, like architecture and just kind of general, like civil, what is it called? Civil engineering type stuff or civic engineering. That's the word. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was interesting because we talked about it in the last episode, the idea that it's um, like Steve Jobs or someone, no, Steven Spielberg was like, I don't want to give the impression that this is a democratic process. Right, right. And so it was interesting, though, because obviously when you're talking about like literally money spent from tax dollars, a, a democratic <laughs> like a, process. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like in that sense, that might be a place where it's appropriate not to. I mean, that's what I kind of bothered me about it was that it was this idea that like, oh, design thinking is the special thing that only designers do. And that's the problem with it, that it doesn't like open up to everyone's ideas. Um which I was kind of like, no, that's the whole point is that everyone can do design thinking. And certainly like the incarnation of design thinking in design sprints, like that's the whole point. You bring in a bunch of people, um, users, and also like 
you know, like I participated in a design sprint for something that was not a data science project explicitly. So, um, so yeah, that part of that part kind of bristled me, but I still think it's a good, um, it's a good thought about when is it appropriate to have a more democratic process versus not. Okay. Well, if you ever find the link, I'd, I'd like to read that. Yeah, I will. I'll find it. It was, it was kind of, it, it sort of took a radical bend where it was talking about how, um, design thinking, is like a way of um, empowering the status quo because it's kind of like the decision makers have now codified something that like like reinforces their decision making process <laughs> like and they can all like you know the choice of who to listen to and who to what users to empathize with or what users to you know do your user testing on like those are like very you know it's not just like oh design thinking makes everything okay like those are big choices that have huge implications um but i still don't think it's design thinking's fault <laughs> no it's not magic right i mean <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's yeah. not magic but but i can see how like by using the word design which i'm sure people like debated for a long time it might give the false impression that this is something that only designers do um but that's also seems to be Nigel Cross's whole point is like, this is like this third way of knowing that everyone does. And the whole point of this is just defining that. So it's easier for people to, you know, learn it younger and, you know, see how it's at play in their own lives. Right. So. I mean, I would argue that, it's a good, that you know, we're, well, one of the things that we're trying to do is to kind of essentially do that, but for data analysis, you know, because like, you know, it's not it's a lot there's data everywhere now and lots of people have to do it so it was helpful we could say well what is it that we're doing and you know and and formalize it a little bit you know exactly yeah and then it's like it almost enables those democratic processes better because then it's like oh you have like regular citizens are trained up in this skill so they are able to like come up with innovative solutions and contribute to them so yeah all right. I'm glad we rebutted that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that, that was. That thing that challenged, you know. I do think, I mean, I I do want to be aware that, like, we're definitely, like, going in hard on the design thinking. I still feel like it's, we're, like, hitting on something very substantial. Um, but it's true that there's, you know, like, it's, it's kind of like a trendy new topic um, and anything like that, there's going to be counterpoints and yeah. other opinions. Yeah. So we can, we can continue to look those up and rebut them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at least debate them. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I wanted to um, introduce a new segment. Okay. And uh, it involves you. Okay. And, and uh, I'm going to spring it on you if that's okay. Yeah. Go so for it. I wanted to call it Hillary's Habits. <laughs> and, and the the point of the segment is to i'm going to ask you some very detailed question about like your data science workflow oh okay okay and, uh and you just and, and it's just so people can get a sense of like what is it that hillary does yeah wait why isn't it hillary and roger's habit because i don't really because you do this stuff more than i do <laughs> <laughs> that's right i forgot that you're senior enough that you don't like do work anymore i think i think the people want to know about what you do they don't care about what i do <laughs> yeah, that's right i'm a data scientist so 
And although as I came up with the name, it kind of made you sound like a nun, but um <laughs> but we're not gonna talk about like, I didn't think about that, but that's great. And I like live with a monk, so it's right. like Yeah, Hillary's habit. I like it. Let's no, I love it. Let's definitely do you have one for today? I do. I it's a, I think I know the answer to it, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. It's related to recent debates on the internet. So you you use our studio, right? I do. So when you bring up an R markdown document, mm-hmm. do you choose to put the output in line or in the console? In the console. No question. That was like the first thing I overrode when the new ones came out. Why? You know, I think there there's an aspect of it that was just like force of habit where I was so used to interacting with the data in the console that it just felt better. Um, and like, I mean, yeah, the debate on the internet is sort of, do you like notebooks or not? And I think there's just something about like, A, it, it always feels a little clunkier to me. Like Im- even when the images pop up, it's sort of good to check and make sure, okay, this image is correct. Like I correctly linked to this image. Um, but then I almost always try to like clear it away um, because I want to see as much text as possible up in the text entering field. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, you know what? That's probably the reason why is that I want that to look as much like a, I want my R markdown to look as much like a script as possible. Right. So you can kind of cram as much content in there as possible. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, not content meaning just like writing or not like, yeah. Um, and I actually, well, I could, <laughs> I can go on about this because I actually do very little analysis in the R Markdown file itself. Um, I'll usually do a little formatting, like turning tables, like into, you know, cables. <laughs> um, so that's like cable is just this like simple function to turn your table into like an, a Markdown friendly, uh, text blob of your table. Um, so I'll do stuff like that and I'll do some, I, I love the inline stuff. That's absolutely my favorite where I can use the little tick marks and then say like, you know, this experiment ran for like X days where X is, um, reactive to whatever the latest thing is. So that's by far to me, like the superpower of R Markdown. Cause I don't, maybe you can do that in, um, IPython notebooks. I'm not totally sure. Um, I'm, I'm no expert in IPython notebooks, but, um, so yeah, anyway, the point is, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, you asking this makes me think about it explicitly because I did try for a while. Um, and I did like, sometimes I would make a table and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I can click through and that's sort of nice, but I almost, I, I, that was never worth it enough to me to leave it there. Um, so I'd always, always remove that. And if I wanted to look at the data, I would, um, use the, like, kind of like the view data thing where it's like a separate tab that pops up, um, with it in kind of like Excel-ish <laughs> format. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think for me, it's like I, I get uncomfortable when I feel like the document is kind of shifting from underneath me, you know, like. Yes. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting like it. Like, I feel like the editor window, I'm just, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's that old age thing coming back. But I feel like it should be a static thing. Like, it shouldn't move unless I move. Yeah. You know, and like. Yeah. When things are kind of popping up and there's like plots happening and there's output being spit out. I don't know. It just like makes me uncomfortable. I don't know why. 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe we're both control freaks. <laughs> <laughs> I care. I care about stability. No, I think I, I agree with you completely. It's like having things move and like accidentally clicking in the wrong place because this thing just popped up and all that just makes me not like it. Um, and I can see if you're much more trained up on, um, like if you're much more used to the notebook habit, maybe that's fine. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the thing that does rub me the wrong way is that I feel like, um, as I said, I kind of, I want people to think about our markdown documents as scripts. Um, and somehow this like takes away from that. Yeah. 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 All right. But I'm certain, I mean, I remember when I turned it off cause I like freaked out when it first came out and tweeted about it and people gave me the instructions for what to do. Right. Um, but I would be interested to know like how many people have finally shifted over and feel like, oh, I actually like it. Or if um, they're still like diehards like us. <laughs> just like. I think we are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think given that it's the default, um, my suspicion is that most people just use it that way. Um, yeah. And um, Well, I would assume most newer people. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But in terms of the people who are already like, familiar with our markdown before the our markdown notebooks came out right that would be interesting yeah um when you compile our markdown what format do you compile to uh oh that kind of varies um yeah but uh recently i've been doing a lot of pdf but um because for like slides and stuff like that even if you're iterating like in the development process well yes because like for slides, like you got to make sure everything kind of fits. Anyway, the mm-hmm. the formatting kind of matters, so I got to make sure I have to kind of keep it in the same format. Yeah. If it were um, like, I don't know, something not slides, <laughs> like a document. I well, let me just say my pattern, which is that usually I want to compile first to Markdown and then maybe later to HTML or something like that. Um, but I don't, Markdown just feels so lightweight, and I have a good viewer, and it just feels easy to manage. You know, I, I don't compile to Markdown, actually. I usually go either go straight to HTML or straight to PDF, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Well, part of it probably for me is that I frequently publish my reports as the readme in the GitHub repo. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's like usually the output I'm most interested in and then i'll like figure out how to get it into a pdf like later <laughs> the one problem i have like in our studio the pdf browser is like total garbage like i, I get to, uh, it's practically unusable but um oh. it's just it's so like slow and clunky and whatever yeah anyway. i didn't even know they had one actually well it may be it's not like it's a somewhat recent development i think um mm, so i see anyway it's just it's super clunky but um so I tend not, I try not to do it just for that reason. Um, yeah. But sometimes I have to. Do you ever develop our markdown not in our studio? Oh, good question. No, I don't think so. No, I don't either. But <laughs> I used to, or did I? I actually don't think I ever did, but I totally would. Um, I try to get by the end of it. I try to get my analysis basically to like load the project you know, munge the data, run, like run the script for munging, run the script for the analysis and then run literally knit of the document rather than clicking the knit button. Um, 
So that could be command. Those could be done from outside our studio, obviously. What do you use to view uh, Markdown documents? I have this app called Mark2, um, like Marked, Marked. <laughs> um, it was, it's, it, you have to pay for it, but it does a really good job of highlighting what changed and various other things. So I was pretty happy with it. One of the things I found is that our studio often will stick, um, you know, for certain types of output, it'll just like dump a bunch of HTML into the Markdown document. And, and like certain, re the readers that I have can't inter don't interpret that. So. Oh, yeah, I've never, I've never ran into that. And I will do images with um, HTML frequently because I... I don't know if I'm just lazy. I still haven't figured out how to resize images in raw markdown. Right. Maybe this isn't possible. I'm not so. sure that it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like not going to save it. I just, I want to render it. I don't want to like save it in a specific size. And, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was our first instance of Hillary's habits. I liked it, but that might, I'll be interested to hear if people like hearing that level of <laughs> detail. I mean, I think I'm hopeful that they will. I'm not challenging your idea. It's just more like embarrassment of like, oh, wow, I can talk about this stuff like forever. Wow. Why, why do you think I came up with it? <laughs> Very good point. It's true that usually I've thought through, if I have a habit, I've almost always overthought it. <laughs> So you know, maybe in the future we can take uh, suggestions from the audience. Yeah, no, that would be good. I need, I need to develop like a, a hashtag or something on Twitter. One time I wanted to write a blog of like advice from Hillary that was like practical advice. Like if I was if I life hacked something, I wanted to be able to publish it somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. What so happened? maybe this can finally be. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, like I'm. I will accept non-data science, you know, questions. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, Hillary's habits could take a, take a weird turn. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, like within reason, obviously. Got it. <laughs> All right, we have some follow-up. Okay. From the last episode. Um, let me pull it up. The first one comes from Todd Burris. Who's, uh, who was talking about our, we were talking about whether Formula One is more dangerous, more or less dangerous than NASCAR. Mm. And he said, um, he says, as someone who does data analysis on NASCAR, uh, first, first of all, that's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> but he says, as someone who does data analysis on NASCAR, wanted to answer your qu the question you raised. Formula One is far more dangerous than NASCAR. Almost twice as many race-related deaths. 17 years since last cup fatality i think that means like nascar cup fatality uh and three three years since the last in formula one really yes. there was a death in the last three years in formula one i guess so yeah wow sounds dangerous to me yeah <laughs> i also remembered the name of the race car driver i was trying to remember last time it was dale earnhardt oh yeah Jr. okay that yeah i was familiar. like that was kind of embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> i believe dale earnhardt senior died in a i believe that was nascar crash but yeah one more bit um i just want to i call out josh uh hurung or hoirung uh who posted another instagram worthy picture of him reading design thinking by nigel cross with his cup of coffee and uh i didn't see this one so i need to i have to investigate okay <laughs> 
Yeah. Did it tag the the Twitter account? It did. Yes. Yay! Thank you. Keep posting them. Keep the pictures coming. It. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, uh, and I think that's it for follow up. All right. Yeah. Speaking of Nigel Cross. Yes. We could. Yeah, I was gonna say that uh, this week. Um, I saw like a British train <laughs> in no, you San didn't. Francisco. Are you serious? I, I did. No, I'm joking. <laughs> like, because I was ready to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, that that. <laughs> I was trying to think of like, like a high speed oh, train coming through San Francisco, <laughs> just like out of nowhere on the street. Oh man, yeah. No, unfortunately, the trend ended, but I'm okay with that because this. This chapter was much more like, like not as hip and cool products, you know, wasn't like a modern juicer or like a $15 million car. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This chapter, so this is chapter three of the book and it's uh, a profile of Kenneth Grange, um, who was apparently a founder of Pentagram, which is a big design firm. Uh, and uh, I, what did you? I was curious to hear, know what you thought of it overall. I kind of felt like it was, it was a little bit difficult, more so than the other two chapters to kind of map it to specific kind of data science issues. Um, I, I thought it was still interesting in, uh, in its own way, but it was kind of it seemed like a little bit I don't know more abstract in some sense. Yeah, well, I had a few thought. I I liked it, and I thought it was such a huge contrast from the last chapter. Um, where really two people who approach design in very different ways. Um, and I mean, I don't, maybe there's a lot of fundamentals in common. Um, definitely the focus on functionality, but, um, yeah, I, I actually thought it did map back to data science in some key ways. Um, the first is like my favorite talking point now, which is that you have to, you have to care about the use case and you have to, what we would call like dog food it. Um, right. Yeah. Which means, yeah, like do the thing that you're designing for. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that was the most salient point for me. Mm-hmm. You, th- yeah. you kind of have to live in it a little bit, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So he describes picking up sewing because he was designing a sewing machine. The gist of the chapter is that his approach is to kind of optimize the function of an object. Um, and if, if good, if other things kind of fall out of that process, that's great. But um, it's like it's more about like learning how a thing is supposed to work or how it's supposed to help you, and then kind of making it better, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like it sounded like very frequently the design would fall from the or like innovations in the aesthetics would usually come naturally after innovation for functionality. Right. Yeah. That was, I think, uh, one of the key points, which I thought was interesting. Um, in particular, the, in the sewing machine example, um, with like if you just look at a picture of it, I feel like my gut reaction would be like, "Oh, that's kind of like a funky design, right?" Um, and uh, I, and I would, but like it had nothing to do with like funkiness. Really, it was more like he had he had to move this thing off center and he had to curve the bottom because and because it's like it just made things easier, you know. Um, and um, and the the funkiness kind of like. It was a byproduct, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. No, it was, yeah, it seemed, that part was really interesting. Um, and then I thought, I guess one thing that I started to think about as I read the chapter was there's sort of two, um, there's two, 
I guess when you think about, you know, kind of type A data science, this is defined by Mike Hoxter, who's now the director of styling at Stitch Fix. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there's kind of type A data scientists who are doing analysis, mostly analysis, um, and then type B doing the building. So like building um, data science products like recommender systems. Um, and so I was thinking about the empathy part where it's like, there's the empathy for the user in type B. It's really about empathy for the user, the product. Um, and then there's, but there's still like the pitch part from that where you have to like, you still have to also have empathy for the people you're convincing. This is the right product for (laughs) like, usually there's data analysis around that. Um, and then for type A, it's like it, the empathy is as important for both of those components. So understanding the thing that you're analyzing in a really deep way, especially sort of the data collection part and the if you're doing analysis on a process, like understanding the process so that you can identify these, you know, identify what's happening when you see weird stuff in the data. Um but then also like a ton of empathy for the consumer of it, where it's like presenting exactly the case that the person needs to hear um, so that they accept the analysis, as you say. Um, so I thought that was that was interesting, like thinking, I think this chapter more than anything just sparked that thought process um, of like, what what is this going to look like? Or what does the empathy part ex- mean exactly? Um, and I guess he does talk about that, like with the train design that started as asking for like a paint <laughs> design right, yeah. and ended with like completely redesigning the train. Well, actually, um, I'm curious to know what you thought about that. So this is like, so yeah, he talks about how he originally was hired to just like basically paint a design on the front, uh, but he, but he kind of took it upon himself to like hire like a wind tunnel engineer and like look at the aerodynamics of the whole thing and like all without being asked. And, um, it's kind of and there's kind of this idea of like kind of going outside the design brief, um, and I'm wondering kind of what you thought of that. Like I feel like there's there's ways in which that's kind of that's cool, but there's other ways in which it's kind of like that could be annoying. I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like. I mean, I liked it, <laughs> yeah. and I thought it was the type of thing that data scientists should do. Um, like you know, if you're analyzing something, having a recommendation for what you think might solve the problem. Um, I think it's like a great call. <laughs> um, as long as the recommendation's good, <laughs> I guess there's that part. But um, and like reading the reading the audience and figuring out like how far they tolerate you going. Yes, true. Yeah, yeah. He must have had some sense that this would be okay, or that it wasn't a total waste of time. Right. Right. Exactly. Like. And I think, I mean, they talk about this with like the briefs being not well articulated and um, like half of the design challenge is trying to figure out what's going on. And so I think like, I think he probably read that situation correctly where it was like, okay, they want something that looks like sleek and modern and aerodynamic and paint's not going to solve that problem. (laughs) Actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the whole, the kind of vagueness of the, you know, of the kind of specification that they had. Um, because I think that's like a direct lesson for data analysts because often I think, you know, the, even though the data set is in your lap and, and you're, and you're looking at it, like the question that people are asking 
is, is not particularly well defined. Um, and if there's a lesson perhaps to map here, it's that, that maybe you should like take that as an opportunity to kind of like, you know, show people like what could be done. Um, even though, even if they didn't specifically ask for it, because if they, what they asked for was super vague, then it's like, you can take the opportunity to kind of do something that's even better that maybe they weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I think in terms of type B, you know, building, I mean, that's, that's where you have free reign to, you know, totally quote unquote, think outside the box. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this phrase I hate, but you know, just this idea of like, okay, if you, in many ways, when you don't limit yourself to either the scope or the, you know, possibilities in the solution space, that's many times where the best designs come from. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it, there's useful signal here, which is that, you know, that where it's like, you know, not every situation is this, is like this, because I think, um, if you're asking, well, what, when, what are the situations where I should maybe step up or show, show a little leadership, you know, so if, if, when the, when the, when the brief is kind of vague, um, those are the times where like you could do something that's extra or different and it may be more acceptable because people, people don't necessarily know what they want at any given time. Um, by contrast, though, if you have a specification or a, you know, a, or a description that's like super detailed and people just want you to do this one thing like it might make sense to just do that one thing you know that time you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> rather than do something super outside the box and people are like uh i just asked you to do this you know one thing. right no totally yeah again yeah i totally agree with that and i think figuring out feeling that out is important and that is where the empathy comes in of like trying to figure out like is this person you know frustrated that they can't do this themselves and then it would be hard to go outside the box or is this person a little bit more, you know, open and just doesn't even really understand the problem they have on their hands. Right. Yeah. You have to suss it out a little bit and, uh, mm -hmm. it's hard to, totally. yeah, it's hard to describe exactly what that process is, but yeah, sussing it out is the best I can describe. I think also the emphasis of function functionality first is so important, um, for data analysis and and like the type b kind of data products um like i'm thinking about it if you know <laughs> he describes how you know he kind of can't turn off the design brain and he described being at a restaurant that was a some famous muscle place but they put the muscles in like a steel like it was in like a basket or whatever like a bowl with like a steel top with no handles so it was literally too hot to take off um and he like called in the waiter and the manager and was just like, ah, this is terrible. Like, this is so unusable. It kind of reminded me of like everyone getting mad about pie charts <laughs> 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 or just like bad data visualizations where people can't stop themselves from like trashing them. Right, you right, know? right. Um, which, so it's kind of like, I think that is like a function first where people get so mad about pie charts because it's like it's not as functional as other data visualizations. Um, and a data analysis is first and foremost about conveying information. Um, so it that's sort of I I thought that parallel was kind of funny. Um, people yelling on the Internet right. about pie charts. Yeah, <laughs> it'll never end. Yeah. I also the other thing this made me think about is that. I'm the one of the things that like one of the products I work on at Stitch Fix is the sign up flow, which we've discussed before where it's like 
it's both extremely functional and it's like a super important UI and like conversion funnel, if you will, in tech terms. So it's really important that people sign up. You know, we don't want people to not be able to use the experience. Um, but then it's also like this is some of the most important data for us in terms of especially someone's first fix, which is really important because if you know, they'll trust the service more if their first fix is good or at least acceptable. Um, and so, yeah, it was, I, I was kind of laughing because I think because of that dichotomy, um, we've tried to tease apart the form versus function, um, where it's like, especially with respect to data where it's like, okay, kind of the constraints, there's two key things happening. And one is collecting data for that good first fix. And then the other thing is just literally conversion, which is super important. So like people even scheduling that first fix. Um, and what's funny is that the people who are more focused on UI and conversion and just, you know, getting you through, they can't help but start to meddle with the data oh. <laughs> because it is, it's like, if you're motivated by function, primarily you're going to start to notice problem. I mean, there's you know, questions that aren't ideal and are hard to use, but if you change it, you're going to change some of the data that goes into many downstream systems. Right. And so yeah. um, I was just, I was sort of laughing about that too, where I was like, yeah, we're kind of in a predicament. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I can totally, I can totally see why, you know, the team wants to do that because it's like this, this function first is, seems really key. Right, but he does say at the end of the chapter, even even though he emphasizes function first, like you can't take that to an extreme, right? Uh, otherwise, I can't remember what the phrase he used, but basically, I think he said it results in boredom. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually that was the one highlight I have, which unfortunately I can't cannot access right now. But it was essentially, yeah, like you're gonna bore yourself to death. So he calls yeah. it righteous boredom. <laughs> exactly yeah no i like that too and i think that's really applicable to analysis where it's like i mean i guess for scientific writing sometimes you just kind of have to be boring because otherwise everyone will be i don't know though maybe it's never appropriate maybe even in scientific writing where people are kind of expecting a formulaic like this is the type of analysis we do for this type of experiment you can still like spice it up and yeah i mean i think <laughs> try, to, I mean, try to make it engaging yeah and i think or to kind of um I think there are moments where you can kind of te like write it in such a way that it's engaging and that people are kind of i mean inspired by it so to speak you know um and maybe inspired to do their own work or whatever i mean i'm not saying every paper has that opportunity but sometimes there is yeah well i mean that's that is what's interesting because the um I mean, is that the, I feel like when I've seen scientific writing that I really like, it's someone who explains something very clearly and almost using like metaphor or just someone who has really put time into conveying the information in a elegant way. Um, but what's funny is that that still is almost like function first, because it's like if the function of the paper is to convey information, like figuring out relatable ways to convey it is like 
thinking about the function of that's it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think there's like, I mean, so that's that's true. Like, I think like like a, a clear explanation is always helpful. But I think even like some are written. I don't. Know, I, I guess I don't know. Some are written in a way that are that's just more. Just I don't know. It's more emotional in some sense. You know. Yeah, I think. This is like getting to the design versus art. Like, what is art? Is it just emotional expression or like communication? <laughs> um, yeah. There... No, I thought this was a good chapter and I thought it was a really good contrast. And it wasn't quite as like fun and there wasn't as much personality as the last chapter. But I also thought there was so much more explicit discussion of empathy. Even, well, it's funny, there was a lot of discussion of empathy without ever calling it that right yeah the word never comes up (laughs) yeah but i thought that that was i thought in many ways that was like much more um much more applicable to us than like artificial deadlines for you know formula one races right (laughs) (laughs) and like borderline malicious like competitive practices such as building a fake thing right. for everyone to, to like a decoy innovation. I, I do that every day. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't even know how you could do that. Yeah, you, have, like, you have like the real model and the decoy model, right? Yeah. I guess you could just publish some like speculation about some crazy new method and meanwhile churn out papers on just like boring stuff. Right. And, but everyone's, it's like Fermat slash theorem, you know? Right, like, right. Just like, Throw something in a margin and everyone for like 60 years or however long it was just like only does that. And yeah. I did want to, I want to highlight one at one element of the story about the train. So when he's designing this high speed train, um, because he started off saying that, you know, it's not like they called me up and asked me to design the train, right? <laughs> um, it, he had this like kind of long term relationship with, uh, I guess with the, uh, company or the government whoever designed the train whoever paid for it and um and it started off with just like designing the timetables for you know the train schedule um and then he did another thing and then another thing and eventually kind of like built up to this you know he's designing the you know the the the, the train itself um and i thought that was a useful lesson i think particularly in academia but maybe you could comment um in terms of like you know building a relationship with someone um so that you get to the point where you're doing some like significant analysis. Cause I feel like, you know, for me, I think a common path is, uh, you know, you do like a sample size calculation for somebody who's designing a study. Um, and then, okay, that's done. And then maybe the study gets funded and now you're like working on it and, and, and you know, things kind of build over time and eventually you got the data and then you're like doing the primary analysis and then you're doing other kinds of things and maybe in between you're doing methods development. So it's like, I think, it's not like someone just shows up at your door and it's like, let's do this huge thing because it's like, well, who are you? You know? Um, and, um, and it's like, so like you have to allow for the time for a relationship to build, I think before you're designing the train, so to speak, you know? Um, and I thought that was a useful lesson. No, I think, yeah, yeah, that's a great point and definitely relevant to data science, (laughs) (laughs) like getting trust from your collaborators and, um, I mean, that's where it's like having stuff that works, having analyses that are right, um, over time, you know, that, and I actually think that's where it is really important to start to pepper in your product understanding or peppering in like, you know, ideas that you have for the future. Cause 
I think as you start, one thing I realized that Stitch Fix especially was that the more I started to weigh in on the core product, the more that people would listen to me about the core product um, and like think that they wanted my opinion. And, you know, now I have a really strong partnership with the product manager where, you know, I'm deeply involved in like the core roadmap of, of the product team. So it's, yeah, I think that's been super true. Yeah. And like uh, super true. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't. In my experience, like it's actually like I've always I've always found myself kind of leaning in the opposite direction because like I'll be working with a collaborator, and and they'll be like asking me, well, what should we do here? And I kind of would be like, well, you know, I don't know. I'm just like, <laughs> like you're the one who's a scientist, right? But like yeah. you know, but we've been working together for a long time, and it's like it's all just kind of blurs together, right? And, and I'm not trying to like toot my own horn here, but it is like after you have that relationship then like and there's a lot of trust um then it's like there's no like oh you do this and i do that and well you only talk about this and i only talk mm -hmm. about that or whatever you know mm -hmm. no totally yeah yeah and then sometimes you're just like i only want to do this part yeah, right <laughs> yeah and then it's like well <laughs> now i've been too deep right <laughs> yeah yeah no totally it's like you have to choose carefully what you get in too deep on <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> No, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I hadn't even really honed in on that. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, he talked about it. I mean, I did, I did reflect when he was kind of talking about, I had, he had some like three day thing that wasn't a big deal and he was newer and he said he probably got chosen because he was going to charge less. And then that turned into this 35 year relationship. Um, and I was just thinking about how serendipitous my career has been or has seemed to be where it's like, you know, you meet this person, you sent this email and like it sort of evolves over time and turns into something real eventually. Um, another thing I wanted to in the staying with the same uh, train story. Um, there's this moment he talks about where he's trying to where he's actually redesigning this uh, train car and he's trying to find a way to make it more aerodynamic. Um, and um, one of the problems is that there's these like little knobs on the front of the train car called the buffers. Um, and they're used to kind of like push, like so the, the head, you know, if you ever watched like Thomas the Tank Engine, the cartoon, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> like the, the, the engine always has like some th things on the front to kind of push the other trains around. Um, and so this train, you know, like every other train had those things, and but they were affecting the aerodynamic kind of structure of the train. Um, and, uh, so finally he gets, he goes to like the chief engineer. He's like, look, I need you to just explain to me, like, you know, what, are, what are these things and what do they do and how do they work? Um, and I think, and I think that's like, it's one of those things where like, I think like he probably knew that, but he, but by initiating that conversation one more time, you know, forces him to kind of rethink it a little bit, but also forces the engineer to think about it just like from from you know just from kind of first principles again because um, surely the engineer knows what those things are for and how they work but just by having him explain it one more time they were able to come to realize that like actually this train will never be used for that purpose right so it doesn't need these things right um and i think it's like it's one of those things where like i think as the in, in data analysis i feel like you do have to do be the person sometimes to be like hold on a second like just explain to me what lung cancer is again, you know, <laughs> or like, or just, you know, and just, you know, you can't do it all the time. Cause then you like, you sound like an idiot, but, um, but sometimes like you have to choose a moment where it's like, okay, let's just like go back to first principles just for a minute and like think about, well, what is it 
what is this problem and how does it work and what are we missing basically yeah no yeah that's a really good point and i think i mean thinking about when that's been helpful on the other side of it it's sort of that concept of like needing a fresh pair of eyes or just you know having someone who does push you in the right way and like you said not in like a super annoying way (laughs) where you're just like oh stop bugging me with all these fundamental questions well there's a there's a fine line between like having a fresh pair a pair of fresh eyes and someone who's just naive right um yeah like a naive person pushing you know all of their ideas on you and you're just like meh I don't want to deal with that right so I think being able to figure out like where that line is and knowing when to raise things and when it's important to do that that's like a that's a tricky skill I think um because it's I don't know it's not there's no rule that as far as I know yeah totally and I think that um I think I mean probably the innovation at least part of the time comes from the engineer not the designer where like in explaining it they're like oh yeah I guess in this case actually now that I think about it we actually don't need it um which is I, I think it's kind of cool. It's almost like the opportunity to allow someone else to think creatively. Right. Yeah. But you have to kind of create that situation, that circumstance, basically. Um, and so anyway, that, I, to me, that just felt like I feel like I've been in situations like that um, and not <laughs> haven't always like landed upon some great discovery. But um, I do feel like like I had to pick my moments, you know. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a place where frequently you will run into resistance um, because of that neuroplasticity issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, kind of like in terms of someone just being set in their ways and feeling a little threatened if they don't feel like the expert or, you know, I think it's probably uncomfortable when you had like provided a brief or a requirement and, then realize later that you were way off base or not off base exactly, but you weren't like, it can be uncomfortable to realize that you weren't thinking creatively in the first place. That's true. Yeah. But one thing, I think it's one thing that's worth remembering. And for example, like, you know, I deal with a lot of, you know, people who work in the medical school and uh, most faculty in the medical school really don't do any teaching. They certainly don't do any formal teaching. Um, And many of them don't even have like students or whatever that they work with. Um, and so they're not often put in a position where they have to explain something that's like super basic, you know, um, because they know it, all their colleagues know it. Um, and so they just go from there. Um, and so like, like here in, in, in public health, like we teach all the time. Um, and in fact, I have, the, you know, some of us have the opposite problem, which we're always trying to explain things and it's kind of annoying, but, um, but it's, I think not everyone is in that situation and it's hard, it's easy to forget that like, some people aren't always in that situation. So they don't always have that opportunity to like, just think from, you know, from first principles and be like, okay, here's what, here's how this disease works. And, uh, and, and here's how, well, A goes to B goes to C. And like, they don't, they're not like doing that all the time. In fact, they probably would never do that. Right. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good point. Like teaching, teaching is, that's one of the things that's so great about teaching is that it makes you like re-experience the learning of something very frequently um which is at least part of this process i think right Um, yeah and i think it's sometimes you're like well how could i explain this in a really simple way and like it turns out there isn't a way to to do it and you're like well that's inherently a problem right if you can't explain this in a simple way you know Mm -hmm. totally Um, um 
I just had one more bullet point here in my notes, uh, which is about the failure that he describes, the one failure uh, example that he has where he he actually designed another train for the French, I guess it was, the French. Yeah. And uh, and he basically gave the same design. uh, Yeah. And and they hated it. Right. I did think that was really funny where it's just like, in retrospect, these countries hate each other. <laughs> so why would they want to have the same trade, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, no, I thought that was that was very funny. Well, and I just thought um, it was a great example of how like the t- the same thing can be a success or a failure at the same time. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. It's like the the key thing that was missing is empathy for the French. <laughs> yeah, for the the audience in that case. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why like the same that's I really like that point. I think it really illustrates um how 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 big a role that plays. Did you have any other thoughts on this chapter? Not really. It was I was I was kinda glad we were gonna have a little bit of a breather week in terms of like the length and it's like, all right, everyone can catch up. Like we're in a good place. All right. So next time we'll do chapter four. Uh, which is, I think, now things will start to get a little more, uh, I think, meaty, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was exactly the word I was going to use. <laughs> so uh, homework for next week, or homework for t- two weeks from now is uh, it's substantial. So, you know, get your act together. <laughs> How long is the chapter? I didn't even look. Well, I, what do you mean by length? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How, in terms of the percentage advanced on your Kindle before and after the chapter? Uh, after the chapter, well, it's about half, right? So it's, it's eight chapters, and at the end of the fourth chapter, you're about half, you're a little bit, you're about halfway through, I think. I see. Yeah. Well, cool. Looking forward, as always. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. I feel like that's, yeah, succinct. <laughs> <laughs> 